0: Everything good in life is forged on the anvil of adversity. We want to start a movement of high achievers that have the courage to fashion a life of greatness. A movement of those brave enough to face the fires of self improvement on the journey to peak expression. Smiths build things, Smiths get the job done. We are All Smiths. Welcome to the All Smith Project, where greatness is forged not found move fast and break ship lskd develops functional sportswear with a streetwear aesthetic that's on a mission to inspire you to chase the vibe through sport fitness and adventure i train daily in the rep shorts and love the versatility they offer the zipper pocket is an absolute game-changer. I go from training at the gym directly to meetings, running errands, or prepping for podcasts. The LSKD tribe has become true family, and we are excited to continue to develop our community. Shop now at lskd.com and use code ALLSMITH. We chase the vibe here at AllSmith. Let's all become 1% better every day. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the AllSmith Project. Today's guest is a former professional baseball player turned fitness coach. He's a gym owner, an entrepreneur, an author, and a consultant, but honestly, a really good friend, a fellow member of Team Too Tall, and in my opinion, one of the most interesting people on the planet to talk to. I'm excited to introduce Logan Galbrick. What's up, man?
1: Hey, how are you? Thanks for the intro. Intros are always wild. You know, uh, it feels weird to hear other people talk about you. It's but also
0: insane that you've done all of those different things, man.
1: Getting like, old. I just had a birthday. I'm getting up there. You 38, know? man. Yeah, that's right.
0: What's it feel like to know that uh, you're a couple of years till 40?
1: It is weird. Um Having that birthday definitely had it on my mind, you know. Um It's cool. I don't know. I think growing up, I think life's fun and growing up is is the journey and so yeah just it's cool to like get to these certain parts and reflect you know it's also the end of the year it's like generally a time of reflection Um, big birthdays are a time of reflection and so yeah it's nice I think it's nice to look back
0: that's cool I I recently had a conversation with a buddy and it was around the concept of like we have deaths and we have rebirths typically close to every decade Mm -hmm. and we just happen to be talking about where we were at 18 versus 28, Mm -hmm. and then 28 versus, like, 34, 35. Like, there's a lot that changes in those in-between moments. And I look back at, like, 18 to 22, I was a completely different person. Totally. And I briefly mentioned that to you offline today. What what does that bring to mind for you? Like, where your headspace was back when you were in pursuit of professional baseball versus now being this high-level entrepreneur that's just, like, trying to spin all the plates all at once.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, a friend of mine, Brian Chontosh, do you know Brian? I don't. Um, Tosh is a legend. Um, He is a legend for many reasons that we don't have enough uh, terabytes in your (laughs) podcast technology to talk about, but uh, I'm paraphrasing. He says it um, very colorfully. (laughs) Like, you know, when I was a private, he had a military background, he's like, when I was, whatever, new, he's like, I thought I knew everything and I know for sure I was an idiot. (laughs) And then I became the next thing. And he's like, I can look back and I know for sure I was an idiot. But at the time I was like, I'm the guy, whatever. And the the progression is obvious. And so that obviously means that right now (laughs) we are subject to that thing. You know, I think uh, I talk quite a bit in the education side or consulting side or you know, developmental side of, of what I do, um, about progression like that, and this idea of, of transcendence of who we currently are. And that's all fine and dandy in theory, you know, and I was just joking, uh, about a couple of days ago, the internet now does a really good job of reminding you how brutal you were <laughs> 10 years ago. This video popped up and it was the first time I hopped on a camera at the gym, and I'm—I think it's ten year, ten years old this video, and I'm trying to articulate flow, which was eventually a big part of the book that I wrote and all this stuff. And I thought I was just dropping knowledge, <laughs> okay? and I reposted it just cheeky, I think, on my Instagram stories. And a student at the gym came up to me, and she was like, "I'm so glad! I love that that you reposted that video." And I'm thinking she's like gassing me up and like saying something nice. She was like. I watched the whole thing, you know, a lot of times, and I have no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> and and she got to the punchline, which is like, I think you are a level ten out of ten communicator. I you, I think you communicate as good as anybody I know. And just seeing that was really inspiring because if you were that bad, I even I could get good. At that. And I was like, oh, okay. You know what's so fascinating about
0: that though is like. You are so disciplined with your writing. We briefly talked about how you write roughly five blogs a week. And it's like early on, you have a lot of concept and ideation. And it's very challenging and difficult to share that with the world. But the moment you start writing, it fills the gaps within our thinking. Mm -hmm. And then it assists in your ability to translate that and communicate that appropriately to your audience So I also also think it just shows the discipline of the last decade of you putting pen to paper or finger to laptop to really digest a lot of what you're trying to communicate in a very progressive fashion where it's understood at roughly a third to fifth grade level rather than being up in the clouds where most people are going to like woo woo about it.
1: Yeah, I think in hindsight, we're learning about just a lot of what's available to the process to us from the process of writing. Um, of course, in the moment I wasn't doing it in that contrived of a way I was, I was writing because I was trying to create value and express something in a way that maybe suited me as like a shy person. Um, you know, but yeah, there's a a remarkable thing that happens from reading and writing. I believe, um, I'm not naturally good at anything, (laughs) I think sometimes people are like, well, you're such a good writer, it's, it's unfair, you know. You,
0: you put know. in the reps, man. Not, yeah,
1: nothing short of like wanting to smack them. I want to say, you know, there's a little practice that went into that. You know, I'm not naturally good at this. Mm-hmm. Public speaking, I was tormented my whole life uh, by the idea of speaking in front of people, especially groups. I mean, I would cry tears uh, in in school from ages, you know, I think, Second grade, we started reciting poems, and I was a great student. I would fail every single time. Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. In high school, I'm crying in front of my class, and I can't articulate my words. This is something that just plagued plagued me. And so, similar thing, the feedback I get in my life now is, oh, my gosh, you're such a gifted speaker. And I just want to be like, you have no idea what you're saying right now. This is only reps. This is the only thing you're looking at is, is repetition. And I noticed that reading made me a better speaker and a better writer. Writing, of course, had the same effect. And um, I don't know if it, whether you're going to publish something or not. That practice does a great job of helping you organize your thoughts in a structured way. And I, I just want the last thing I'll say about that is um, it is so frustrating to many people, like discouraging. And I just want to like try to normalize as much as possible. Um, anybody who you are looking towards that is maybe good at something or better at something than you, probably just had a little more willingness to endure that discomfort. Yeah. Meaning, like, can I write a sentence not like it, erase it, and try it again? And that sounds like super like something someone say on a podcast, uh, but that is as true of a statement as I can. It's kind of the concept
0: of, like, write
1: to edit. Oh, and I, yeah. I
0: think we, as human beings, almost romanticize the success of others. And we, and we, like, build them up because typically we know the outcome. So we're looking from, like, the success backwards. But when you're actually experiencing it, as you're describing with learning how to public speak, learning how to write things that are publishable... It's like from your lens, there's imposter syndrome, there's misspelling of words, mm-hmm. there's frustration and not being able to access the word. Maybe it's synonyms or thesaurus.com or things like yeah. that to try to like better articulate. But I also think the, the consistent practice of reading, the consistent practice of writing behind closed doors, doing the thing, not talking about the thing, not thinking about the thing, but actually consistently doing the thing. Mm-hmm allows you to kind of leverage that crack in the door to then pursue this reservoir of potential that maybe the optimist and you really believed was there, but then the pessimist in you like brought yourself down based on the credibility of the actuality of what was performed in front of others. Yeah. But then you stubbornly persisted over the course of time. And now true confidence is what I can look back and I have an honest track record of why I am the way I am because I did the thing consistently.
1: Yeah. You had the data. Uh-huh. Yeah. that, that that's, t- that's totally it. And definitely I, did, I didn't want to hear it when people were like, yo, you just got to get in front of people and you got to keep trying. Like I I was the last person who wanted to sign up for that. Um, but you're right. And I think those, those reps are where it's at. I just, you know, I'll say this. I wish it was another way. <laughs> you know, I wish there was some other truth to this like skill development thing. There's just not. Um, and it turns out that communication is pretty front and center with most every expression. I mean, doesn't matter the industry, doesn't matter the skill set. Um, you're, you're largely going to be, <laughs> I haven't thought this before, but maybe we're going to roll it out. I say a thing about fitness. I go, uh, you know, regardless of the specificity of your physical goal, you'll either be supported or hindered by your level of GPP readiness. Uh It's a statement I say a lot. Well, I think what's just come to me right now as I'm sitting with you is in most any interpersonal undertaking, relationship, business, or whatever, that's probably going to be either supported or hindered by your communication skills, readiness. Right. And so um, I can't really think of someone who would not benefit from doing the due diligence on developing that that craft the examples are crazy too and we all know these folks there are so many people who are so much smarter and and more informed and more technical that just are not able to have success because they can't take the brilliance and communicate it to the world you know there, there are people who have way less coaching ability way less knowledge way less x y and z uh who are able to create value in the world and that's true for scientists and doctors and, you know, how many brilliant doctors are stuck in an unmarketable conversation because they can't translate what they know into the world, for example.
0: I think it gets limited a little bit by by the story that we tell ourselves, right? We compartmentalize ourselves based on societal norms. And that's like, hey, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm not a communicator. I'm not a public speaker. And we get labeled by that title, and then we just kind of soften and put ourselves into a box. Mm-hmm. But if we're able to shift that narrative a little bit, and on this concept of communication, it's not just external communication. It's intrinsic communication and our self-talk. Yeah. What kinds of things do you teach in some of your your seminars and your your hold the standard summits around the concept of self-talk? Cause that's probably where it needs to begin is that narrative that we tell ourselves before we're able to articulate to others.
1: Yes. Yeah, self-talk is at the heart of confidence. Um, you know, I think a lot of Michael Gervais work I think is probably closest to home on validating what I just said. So folks can check out his work. Um, but you said it earlier. Self-talk that is not supported by data, you know, so it wouldn't wouldn't be then believable. Isn't real confidence? That's mm-hmm. like like projecting swagger internally or externally that is unearned. It's right. it just sort of falls flat, you know. And so I think our our communication needs to be uh, met with experience and data. Um, you know, a lot of the communication work that that I touch on in you know, the whole standard summit and the educational work that we talk about, it's actually less granular. I mean, it's probably a good call to action to move towards self-talk. And and it's more um, uh, 10,000 foot view around objectivity. Mm. So a lot of our language and communication is around how can we increase the objectivity of any scenario, right? And uh, I find that folks who are, you can be as charismatic as all get out, but if your language is very subjective, vague, unclear, the things that you're saying uh, aren't very uh, actionable, they're not very effective, et cetera. So if we can, not
0: of, tangible for people to grab, put in their pocket and then put to use that day.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, we and we hammer on this in ways in the strength and conditioning world that, that you would recognize um, that are very specific and maybe intense. But in our coaches development program, you could never say go grab a heavy kettlebell because I don't know what that means. You know, what I mean, it's like to increase the objectivity. It's like you should be able to perform this task like 8 to 12 times, you know, without any more warm-up. Like, oh, that's bringing more objectivity to a very subjective thing. You got mm-hmm. 30 people standing in front of you. What, is, what does heavy mean, right? And so anything that we say, uh, the way I look at it is on a, a sliding scale, almost like a, a knob of volume, and you can trend that towards subjectivity or, or objectivity. And it just pays to speak more objectively in any context. You know, we're trying to make this like work explicit. You know, um, anybody who's been in a relationship of any kind knows that assumptions will kill us. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, Assumptions are around non explicit, subjective, vague language or lack thereof, right? And so, anytime we can bring objectivity, anything that you're going to say is going to just land harder, be easier to hold someone to account to, um, more effective, et cetera.
0: And, and another takeaway that I'm seeing here, in my opinion, you're a master of curiosity. And I think that stems from the fact that you are able to take a 10,000 view, a 5,000 view, and then shift to be, in, from my perspective, from your perspective, from a, a third person's perspective. And you, there's variants and variables associated with that. And I think that comes from the five perceptual positions, mm. things that I've heard you speak on before. And I think we're, we're subconsciously kind of touching on them within this conversation around communication, but I'm excited to unpack that a little bit with you.
1: Yeah. Five perceptual positions is a tool that I think uh, can be life-changing. I'm a little bit of a nut for frameworks. I realize that frameworks are like techniques and techniques are good. It's not the whole picture, but uh, yeah, let's talk about it. And and folks that are listening can, can steal it. Um, One of the beauties of this framework is that when you, make it explicit meaning like say it out loud to like a group of people listening or you and I, we can't now unknow this. So we share this language and now we have this mental frame to to use mutually. Uh, so the framework is valuable if it's in your own head, it's extra valuable if the people around you have it as well is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. Yeah,
0: that's really helpful.
1: So there's five perceptual positions. Uh, the first position is self. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of work to know what's happening there because we spend most of our lives looking through our own two eyes. Um, the second perceptual position is that of other. And this one is way more difficult than you'd imagine to execute. Because most people would say, oh, yeah, put yourself in their shoes. And that ain't it. It's, it's not me in your shoes at all. It's It's you in your shoes. <laughs> Right. And so to really embody the perspective of other, I would have to know things that I just don't know. And I know you pretty well, but I would need to know and I would need to embody your value system, where you came from, how tired you are right now, what's on your mind right now, what's important to you, what's hurting you, what you're desiring, what you're in avoidance of. I would need to to embody all of that. Not from my perspective looking through your, eye, your eyes, but from your perspective. And that's the second perceptual position. The third perceptual position is that of other. So we're actually in like the perfect scenario kind of to talk about this because we're in this studio and just behind me is a glass uh, window. And uh, the person beyond the glass window is in many ways taking on the, the third perceptual position of other. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's here, but not really here. He has this vantage point that is emotionally disconnected from us, and it's sort of like this this outsider view. If you were in traffic and you pulled up to a red light and you saw two people on the corner fighting, you have a perspective that is very different than the one person and the other person. Oh, yeah. Right? Very different. I mean, <laughs> you're not in a threat. You You're not like you know, no one, uh, maybe they're fighting over money. Your money wasn't taken, right? Or you didn't feel like you deserve to take the money. Whatever the perspective is, you don't have any of that. And you're kind of like having this interesting understanding. this like non-skin-in-the-game perspective. Very helpful to take on this third perceptual position. We're almost done. The fourth one, I think, is very interesting when dealing in teams and organizations. Specifically, the fourth perceptual position is that of the group. Mm. So it's kind of like, if your brand, like the Allsmith brand had its own desires and value system and personality and wants and fears and needs, what's that perspective? Like that perspective is kind of looking down on us right now being like, I really want this to be great. I want, you know, Bryce to look good. I want Logan to look good. I want this to sound good. I want like people to hear that all the needs that it has. And if you can disassociate from your own self, Because it isn't you it's another thing Mm -hmm. that's the fourth perceptual position the fifth perceptual position is kind of like the granddaddy of them all this is um that of source or if you're a religious person god you're the person that you worship Uh, you can also take on a perspective that this is um, the highest expression of humanity right it's it's there's nothing higher than the fifth perceptual position love right God whatever that may be and from that perspective it's even more removed than the car at the red light looking at the two people fighting you know because God loves both of them and just wants everybody to be happy including you in the car right yeah and so I run us through those five perceptual positions just so you have it but in any uh, you know moment of disagreement uh, maybe um, a negotiation of some kind, any real conversation that is uh, in contention, especially, um, you can move through all five perceptual positions and gather a truer truth than any one of those perspectives. Because what we know about even like uh, neuroscience and the way that the brain works is that I'm only taking in a very small amount of the data of what's true around me. My brain is sort of deleting information. I can kind of only really see you. We're in this studio. I'm not really noticing the details of this room over here. There's certain light rays I can't even see. Humans can only hear certain frequencies. We're constantly deleting and omitting uh, certain information. Mm -hmm. Now, if I could add in your perspective, that would be a little bit more. And then his perspective, I could add more. And then somehow this outside, top-down view, I could I could see this for what it was. Maybe I could remember where I am in San Diego right now, and I can remember what the weather's like outside. I don't have any of that perspective right now, mm-hmm. right? And so the best information, the best type of information to make decisions on is the truth. And if you can start from the premise that your perspective is definitely not the truth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very limited. It's very limited, and it's maybe only part of it, and it's maybe not a great part mm-hmm. of it. Now you can aggregate this kind of quality situation. And if you find that there are two people who are kind of butting heads on any particular topic, I challenge those two people to go through that exercise, honestly. And I bet there's a more agreeable footing to to step on. I I don't know if this is, you know, true. Uh, I like to think things through, you know, quite extensively. I think it's true. So we'll throw it out as a theory. I think that your ability as a leader is... Somehow tethered to how much time you spend in the other four perspectives Mm -hmm. and if you're spending a lot of time in that first uh, position your own self position You're probably not great at this leadership thing.
0: Yeah, that's a very great observation and you've had in my opinion this skill from very early on one of my favorite stories that you tell that I definitely want to revisit is when you were sitting as a freshman at the University of San Diego listening to coach Rich Hill and observing kind of what what all is going on within the room you weren't sure if you were going to go there there was a few other options that you had in your pursuit of high level division one college baseball and I remember you you shared it with me last time where you were walking down the dorms and you started to see the names of some of these guys you're like how the hell am I going to get on the field Mm -hmm. like some of these guys are Five stars, four stars, very prestigious. And I mean, you can relate that to the now with the nil Mm -hmm. and social media and how that just creates a lot more noise and volume associated with how that can impact the five perceptual positions. And then simultaneously, you guys are now sitting in this meeting, Coach Rich Hill is delivering a message. Did I describe that appropriately?
1: Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, the, the only other detail is when I walked down, so you're describing this memory that I shared where I'm walking down the dorm, uh, and, and my floor was all baseball players. Uh And, um, the context is I went to the university of San Diego by the time I'm there, I I'm already committed. So there are no, no other options at this point. I've, I've given up those other options. I'm I'm here. Yeah. So, (laughs) So I've moved into the dorm. Um, And I am an egomaniac in a healthy way at this point in my life, I would say. An egomaniac to support my athletic goals, which Mm -hmm. is like, I can do anything. I'm easily one of the best catchers in the country. Let's go, right? And I say that because (laughs) I made an aggressive decision going to that school because they had a freshman All-American catcher. So I, I would get there as a freshman. He would be a sophomore. Unbelievable player. Like, once in a generation player there. And, uh, I thought that was like my only competition, which is a ton of competition. Okay. And I started walking down this, uh, you know, this dorm hallway. And at the time, of course, I'm an expert on the first and last name of any catcher who's of any stature in the United States of America. Okay. I'm walking down, I'm like, Kevin Hoffmacher's here. That's interesting. Uh, and then another catcher's name. And then I'm like, what's going on? (laughs) I'm like, am I ever going to play here? (laughs) You know? And, uh, and so there was like this moment of like, oh, it's about to get real, you know? And it worked out. Um, But the follow up is the rules meeting, which is what you're talking about. And the first team meeting and Coach Hill comes in. And it's interesting you say that. I I recently just retold this story. And I think it might've been the first time I can remember. Almost like, Disassociating or at least seeing something from two different perspectives at the same time mm-hmm. So i'm in the front row freshmen rattled. I mean the first year is just stay alive Sympathetic just reactionary like don't die Like am I going to all my classes like, you know, you're just totally overwhelmed I'm sitting in the front row just trying to do everything right and um, it's a rules meeting. So i'm there observing as a player learning about rules But as soon as coach came in, I just recognized what that room was, which was an adult male who feeds his family based on the behavior of of us children uh, and our ability to perform at the highest level is trying to figure out how we will do that.
0: And and create a framework for you guys to operate in. So it's not just a clusterfuck.
1: Totally. So he's trying to lay out the culture that would do that. And I'm like, oh my God, I was like, this is how you run a company. You know, And I remember being like, mental note for later when I'm like 40.
0: The first <laughs> introduction to your mind of the concept of transferable skills. Totally.
1: And I was like, that's interesting because it's so apparent. I mean, I don't know what your experience was with basketball, but I just remember like the levels get so intense. I didn't go to a prestigious high school. I played high level like club ball and things like that. So it's not like I hadn't been around the best players in the country But when you get to, I mean, it's similar from going to middle school to high school. Like I played varsity as a freshman and I'm like, well, these are adults and I'm, I don't even know what puberty is. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a different thing. Mm -hmm. And it was like that again in college. I got there and I'm like, what is this sport? It's 120 miles an hour. And I like, how to slow this game down. And it's so overwhelming. And so just seeing that, I was like, oh, it's, it felt so apparent that at this level, you need to win and you need to win immediately. (laughs) And I was just like, okay, so we have no facial hair because that will somehow lead to like another half of a win somehow, right? And we're all going to wear our pants a certain way and we're all going to do certain things at certain times because... Obviously, that would help us win. There's no other thing that matters. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why is this meeting at 751? It's like, somehow that will help us win more baseball games, you know? And I'm like, oh, this is so apparent to me. that This guy is trying to set standards that would yield this outcome. And if it didn't, those wouldn't be the standards, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was just really important. How was
0: he able to create buy-in around those standards with people that were for lack of a better term, egomaniacs, but coming in with a high level of of high school prestige, Mm -hmm. like in their shit didn't stink. But then all these high caliber people in the same room with a little bit of maybe a, a soft narcissist narcissism where Mm -hmm. they're just like, I I came here to be the guy, Yeah. but everybody came there to be be the guy. Yeah. How did he create buy-in and separate and have levels to that level of just ego to use it to your advantage and then backing it off where it could benefit the entirety of the team.
1: Yeah. So I think a ton of credit goes, um, to coach Hill for like setting the constraints. There were some cultural things that did happen top down, but the real magic, and I actually, I hate using that word magic. Um, it was a magical time. Those four years we were able to accomplish something that still hasn't happened again at that university really overachieved. Um, so a little bit top-down, but eventually the organization, meaning the, the, the members of the group, the players on the team, would have to decide how things were going to be. So some of the constraints that helped were it was such a rigorous environment and it could easily turn toxic if it's misunderstood, but um, an idea was fueled there that, Uh, And I say this in the summit. Here's the quote. I don't know who said it, but um, it's retold by Coach Hill. Which says, We will not accept in victory that which we would not accept in defeat. So that could be just an eyewash, nice thing to say. But if you really embody that from a leadership level in the top down, it reverberates through an organization. And what that statement means is that if you take care of the process and the things that are inside of your control and fail, you are safe here. But if you relinquish attention to detail or things that are inside of your control, it doesn't even matter if you win. You have hell to pay. Mm. That is a powerful place to be. yeah, Because I think we all want the freedom to try our best, which is a vulnerable effort. At the fringe of our ability, that's where failure happens. You know what I mean? Like, I could put you under a 155-pound barbell, and, like, there's no chance you're going to miss that lift. It's like when we get to 95 105%, there's a chance for some sketchiness. Mm-hmm. That's the vulnerable part. So what is high-level sport? It's a bunch of guys going or gals going out to the fringe of their ability – See really who's who, Mm -hmm. right? If you can create a culture that supports going out to that fringe of your ability, and really ultimately all you're responsible for is the parts that are in your control, you're safe. You're safe to win. You're safe to lose. You're safe to try your best, and that's what this organization is going to support. And so that comes with two sides. One is um, the freedom and the beauty of what I just said. The other side is that was a ruthless place to be. And the teammates were more ruthless than the coaches. You would get just
0: hammered
1: if you couldn't step in line about the process. You know, if you were a bad weight room guy, that was your, you're a bad weight room guy. You would be a bad weight room guy, Bryce. Yeah, you would, yeah, you would cut that. This is the type of chirp that would happen. You know, What do you, <laughs> this is a real quote. That's seven up. Are you drinking seven up? <laughs> How old are you? Right, this is the type of environment. And this is where so,
0: hold the standard was born. So gnarly,
1: dude. Right, yeah, that's strong. So gnarly. Um, but uh, I say all that that story because that was that was the culture. But there was a shift, and this happened with a bunch of freshmen and sophomores who decided how that culture was going to be. And uh, my sophomore year, we played the University of Texas, who just came back from winning a national championship, number one team in the country. We swept them. Unbelievable feat. And that was the, the rest was history. And the, the, from the bottom up, the group decided and policed this culture in a way that the coaching staff couldn't even keep up. If you messed up, you'd, you'd much more fear the wrath of your teammates than just the to play devil's
0: staff. advocate. Let's say hypothetically, you did not sweep them. Yeah. Do you think that would have brought about some questioning of the culture? Hey, we're doing this thing, but it's not working, it's not leading to the outcome.
1: I think, um, yeah, it's a fair question. I think that baseball is such a failure-ridden sport. There's so many games. There's so much failure that um, it would just be, like, par for the course. You drop a series, you you got to find a way to suit up the next day. It's not like football. I mean, I think – Basketball is probably the feeling might, you would know better than me, it's probably somewhere in between baseball and football. Mm-hmm. Football is one of these weird sports where you can go undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you can just like win 10 games and like be the greatest of all time. Um, baseball you play basically every day, and your guys' schedule is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Right? Um, and so there, there's never, uh, this sounds uh, anticlimactic, but there's never that much weight placed on any given single thing. Yeah. You know, that we'd have to find a way to suit up again and do it.
0: I also think it, it, it bred a really healthy relationship with failure for you. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things where I think I spoke about it recently around the concept of just short-term memory. Mm. If you, you know, sw- swing at a pitch that you probably shouldn't have swung at, it's like you can't sit there and beat yourself up about it on the next pitch. You just, yeah. you got to let it go relatively quick. And, and you said something along the lines of, in an effort to seek certainty and safety, it can be really dangerous. That's almost like just never swinging, yeah, right? Or never taking the shot. Inevitably, that, that's almost more dangerous than not even trying to, to yeah. participate and be enrolled in the process. The Trident family taught me something really important this last year, that we are all a bundle of stories, both good, bad, and everything in between. All of their cold brews remind their customers that they're part of something bigger, in themselves i start my day with the sweet cream cold brew as i am prepping my mind and body for fitness service coaching and podcasting with various locations in san diego they offer over 14 nitro cold brews and a variety of specialty drinks you can find the perfect brew and pair it with one of their treats from the keto bakery you can check them out over at tridentcoffee.com and use code AllSmith to take your coffee experience to
1: the next level there's this human desire for certainty uh, and and we're a paradox, so it makes a lot of sense. You know, um, we wouldn't have this, this strong tenure on the planet if we were just hell bent on uncertainty, you know yeah. what I mean? Leave the cave, let's ride, like take chances, <laughs> you know, like let's fight a lion. Um, however, the, the other side of that coin is our, our willingness to be curious is what brought us out of the cave and is what put us on ships and we ended up exploring the world and and puts us on this new frontier of learning and all that but we're always our biology is always gonna the older parts of ourselves is always gonna want to pull us back to safety and uh, you know you're giving like a very thoughtful sports example you know but like uh, a funny example that comes to mind is um, I love Spain I love, I don't know, it's worth mentioning. Spain's great. You should go to Spain if you ever get a I chance.
0: Think, I think when I was in LA last, we went to a restaurant that had tapas, yeah, and okay. I, that's how I knew you loved yeah. Spain.
1: Yeah, like, go to Spain. It's awesome. Um, Spain is awesome in part because the food is excellent. It's one of those places where, like, bad food is excellent food. You know, like, hole in the wall, great. You're, you're just, like, every culinary experience is just going to be, like, elevated. And in Barcelona, Madrid, pick a city, they have Burger King. And I'm walking around and I'm like, and I'm thinking, I'm reflecting, and we talked about the blogs. I always have to find something to write about. I'm like, why is there Burger King here? Because definitely the Spaniards know that like, there's no way Burger King messes with their tapas, like can compete, right? And then I realized why Burger King is there. Burger King is there because we would rather be certain about how bad our food is going to be then take a chance and be wrong about that thing. So I know exactly what I'm going to get when I get Burger King. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat this meal and I know it's bad and I'm not even really going to enjoy it, but I know and that's safe. Right. And like, that's how hardwired it is in our head that they got Burger Kings all the way through Barcelona. It's crazy. So just knowing that I think is, is power. That's bringing some to what we were saying earlier, objectivity to something that we're sort of subject to all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like this little thing in the back of your mind, like, Oh, I really like to know I really like to be in control I really like to be safe yeah totally I just never met anybody the the fact that you're
0: able to even think that deep though (laughs) around something like Burger King I mean you look at marketing 101 right and it's like most people want to spend money on things when they know what they're going to get as opposed to potentially taking a risk and you know let's just use a shirt as an example maybe the quality is a little different maybe it it shrinks after you wash it the first time or you know, it rips upon you doing something athletic or it develops a stench because the quality isn't what you you thought it would be. That level of certainty is very important, but it's also like if you consistently live in the realm of certainty, are you living or are you existing? That's a fair question, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, you're you're speaking to the wrong dude about that because I I will take the desire for uncertainty to such inappropriate levels to where I'm just now getting around to the idea of like keeping a calendar and being like an adult in many ways um, because I hate the idea of uh, knowing like fully knowing how everything is going to be. That deterministic life is just, I hate it. Mm -hmm. And so I I love this idea of uncertainty. Um, And a lot of that comes from like the baseball days. You know, I realized we'd stay up late at night after games. I'm like, why? This is unhealthy. Nothing good's happening after, you know, at one in the morning, 12 at night after, you know, a baseball game. And I realized it was um, a coping mechanism. You know, professional baseball, you play every day. It's like the circus, you know, it's not like practice. You just play games every day. And so 7.05, you put on the monkey suit and you do the national anthem. You play a game, you get done at whatever, 10.30, locker room, you're home at 11. The coping mechanism was if I go to bed right now, it's just going to be time for batting practice that much sooner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we, we got to mix it up. It's like something weird's got to happen <laughs> for this to feel like not groundhog day. Yeah, totally. You know? And um, a lot of, I'm obviously very much influenced by the sport that I used to play, but um, failure is the other thing. You're just drinking failure out of a fire hose, you know what I mean? So a lot of my perspectives, I think, are um, extreme and not normal um, when it comes to things like perfectionism. I don't even know what that is. I've never seen it. Perfectionists are like, I'm a perfectionist. I'm like, prove it show me one, one thing that you've done that's perfect, mm-hmm. you know, um, failure. I'm like, it's all I do is fail. I've never accomplished a goal in my life. I'm like,
0: I think it's awesome to watch from the outside looking in though. Cause like you have a, a subtle humor about it, which I, I very much <laughs> admire, but it also shows in like all the things that you're developing. I mean, dude, I wrote it down here. Like you've got, Strength portion of your schooling, you've got strongman, you've got bodybuilding, breath, breath and exposure, nutrition, gymnastics, speed training, weightlifting, pain free movement, a coach's prep course. You've got local locations, you've got remote. If people are curious, they can participate with the blog or with Deuce University. And you've created this incredible culture of like movement education where it's like Deuce is a fitness school. And I love the term school because. There's an unlimited amount of subjects to play. Yeah. And like failure is also really cool because if when you look at like investments, it's like if you invest in so many different things, you can actually afford to fail in some of them and be successful in others.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. The the school thing comes from, you know, I feel like I don't I don't know how you feel about this, but I uh, am very much like through the back door on on strength and conditioning. You know, I learned it. I I did it only because I needed it, like, hit baseball further. (laughs) I had this very specific goal. Didn't love it. Didn't, you know, never bought the magazines. Never was in the mirror, like, trying to do it, whatever. Um, It was just important for this kind of, like, high utility thing.
0: Yeah, it was a tool for you.
1: Tool, yeah. Not a pastime. And I'm not knocking the pastime thing. That's why I tell people, I'm like, if you like this stuff, like, have a ball. If you don't, like... Let's be smart about it. Like do less, like do it well. Like there's no badge of honor for like nuking yourself in the gym. If it's fun for you, that's different. If it's not like, let's be smart. And I say that because I feel very um, pessimistic about my ability or anyone's ability, frankly, to sell fitness at like face value it's like the worst business ever. Uh, it's hard. Everyone quits. It's so vain and, and high churn. And, um, most gyms are not really even interested in, you know, you getting a result. It's like this whole marketing thing. Um, and if you want to do it, the way you compete in that is having cooler stuff, flashier stuff, and some sort of like marketing gimmick. Um, So I don't wanna even try to compete in that. Uh, Instead, I know that um, skill acquisition is something that we can do forever. So if I can get you curious about learning something, that's like a whole different thing. You know, to the point where people are like, well, how do I, I don't know anything, how do I get fit? I would say, find something you're willing to learn to the end, like it could be anything. If you got curious about rock climbing, I wouldn't even have to be present. And if you got obsessed with rock climbing, that would, on the ninth month, introduce you to mobility training because you'd be so pissed that you couldn't fit your foot on that upper ledge. (laughs) And then you would be so hungry to get stronger that you'd learn something about how to get strong. And then you would naturally be introduced to nutrition because that would help you in your pursuit. And this whole learning process would take you further than equinox ever could. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what we're selling. It's like an education.
0: I like that. And by asking better questions, inevitably people get more curious and then they they dig further. Yeah. And they they're trying to get to the the gold, but in the pursuit of gold, they find these educational pebbles that serve them within their journey. Or at least that's the analogy that I'm kind of seeing.
1: Yeah, it's like um Everyone is exactly where they are. And I think this can be structured in a way that meets people where they're at and progresses forever. I mean, one of the beauties, I think, of what we do is everyone's on the hook forever. Like, there's no winning this thing. You've been doing this for a very long time. You're very good at this, many things, but at this um, strength, conditioning, fitness, CrossFit thing. You could walk into any gym in the world and, like, whatever's on the board, you got it. And I'm sure that you also don't feel like you're done. No. Yeah, you know I mean, like it just keeps That's going.
0: Thing going back to what you said around like the the younger version of yourself, where you're like, oh yeah, I have all the answers. <laughs> it's like the further along you get in the journey, it just unlocks more questions. Like I'm like, wow, I I'm just getting my toes wet in this field, and it's less about the the X's and O's, mm-hmm. and now it's kind of like deconstructing them a little bit, like. Why has periodization been talked about for so long? Does it work? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah. but sometimes also not. Like, what about wave loading? What about all these different concepts that we held as truth for so long? Okay, but the program that works is the one that people will do consistently. Yeah, It can look beautiful on a spreadsheet, but if people don't actually want to do it, it's not super fun. Like, we actually need to find an ulterior motive. And I think the educational pursuit is very honorable because mm. it gets the job done but it's relative to the specificity of the individual.
1: Totally. Otherwise,
0: everybody would just go back and copy and paste from the OPEX model, which has great exercise physiology, great periodization and progression. But everybody tries tried to do that early on. It just led to burnout, yeah. right? And like, I, I think now it's it's the art of coaching as you've talked about. It's It's the messy middle where you're actually using it to build community and relationships and pulling in and tethering to the different components of ancestral living. And it's less about the movement and the training and the lifting of things. And honestly, in my opinion, more about the bonding, mm-hmm. the, the grounding, the nervous system regulation. I mean, there's so much stimulus now that it's almost more important to highlight all of these other things. Like you said, you needed that time after baseball games fuck off a little bit with your teammates and yeah. you know have a little get together or, or celebrate or talk smack to each other and one of my favorite lines is nothing good happens after midnight <laughs> except for the best shit ever
1: <laughs> <laughs> i've never heard that, said and that so way. it's
0: like it can be a little dangerous but it's also like alan watts talks about it. if you're so focused on the thing you become so obsessive that like you actually lose the five perceptual yeah. positions you get narrowed into kind of just like one, two or three of them. Right. And I, I actually think what you guys are doing is really cool. But what I'm really curious about is how do you, how do you filter what opportunities to take on, what are worth it, what's not, and then learning how to empower others on your team where they take ownership for something and you can play more of a support role because at the end of the day, yeah. bandwidth becomes a thing. And no matter yeah. how much you upgrade your personal operating system, it's really hard to be a part of everything all the time.
1: Yeah, it's the classic. Um, I can, but should I is the thing, you know, and I think earlier versions of myself and most of us younger versions of ourselves. Um, the only filter is can you <laughs> if the answer is yes, then you say yes to it. Ultimately, we have to get to a place of um, opportunity cost, you know, so that everything's a trade-off, right? Um, you sitting here with me for a couple hours uh, means you can't do anything else for these couple hours. So you have to make a choice, like, am I going to do this or am I going to do something else? Because this is definitely costing you something else. Meals, time to study, time to train, time to do whatever. And so I think um, I should say that the 10,000-foot view of this is – much like anything, um, only going to be as accurate. You're only going to be as, um, uh, precise in your decision-making as your self-awareness, right? So if you don't understand yourself, you don't know what you're capable of, you're going to make poor choices when it comes to opportunity cost. But if your self-awareness is pretty good and you know where you can affect change and create value and, you know, get what you need, then you can come into choices and view this from a perspective of trade-offs. You know, I'm going to choose this, which means I have to give up X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to make that choice in full objectivity. Uh, If you don't know what you're giving up or you perceive that you're not giving up anything by agreeing to something, then you're probably not seeing the dynamic for what it is, right? And so I just have to look at things as a a trade-off, you know, and hopefully I'm making decisions that the opportunity cost is not greater than, you know, the, the benefit of what I'm doing.
0: It's very well said. Something that comes to mind as you're explaining that is I think part of the maturation in the entrepreneurial space is like early on, at least for me, my decision making or the trades that I made were very much convoluted based on trying to satisfy the expectations of either others, a partner, maybe the tribe. Uh, the people I decided to orient with, and sometimes their goals became mine just by association. And as I've gotten older, I've definitely been able to realize, like, oh, that's not actually for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm very comfortable now, just saying no. Mm-hmm. And it, it's around like living life according to the circumstances of what you actually want. Yeah. But that con that that question, it seems so simple. What do you want? Mm-hmm right? We, we see it in all kinds of somatic therapy type things. What do you want? Let's go to that and let's like work backwards and build yeah. progression. How have you been able to get to that point of like what you want and then how do you kind of consistently support that while simultaneously creating opportunities for others?
1: Yeah, if, I, if I'm being um, honest, vulnerable, I think that any progress I've made in that way has come from breaking the game I, I sort of broke myself in in pursuit of this thing um and with that came growth and some self-awareness and all that now I don't think I, I'm on the other side of that period in like health ways I think I don't think I'm fully on the other side of that in terms of um actions and 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 I say that with awareness okay so I'll speak less vaguely in pursuit of what I've tried to build, I really put my head down and lost a lot of awareness to myself and what I need and who I am and what feels good. And, and there's a lot of like sacrifices that was made. And, um, that was a painful process sort of emerging, you know, a decade in and being like, Whoa, like, who are all these people? And like, why don't I like this? And why is it, you know, why am I angry? Why do I have this like resentment? I I, I'm, I missed the plot. I got lost in the sauce. So realizing that this work harder than everyone skill is helpful, but has these kind of like shadowy parts mm. is uh, something to notice. Now, I have greater awareness and I can make better decisions and I structure my life a little better now. And I still know that from a nervous system regulation perspective, I still have quite a bit of work to do to spend more time in this open, abundant, ventral space, fully regulated space. Uh, And my excuse would be, this is me just sharing this vulnerably, my excuse would be, um, I am moving through and I believe wholeheartedly on the tail end of a series of very fight or flight sympathetic inducing scenarios starting with COVID and you know uh, COVID and then uh, rebuilding a staff and um, now dealing with the the current sort of biggest important goal that I won't really get into until it's time to celebrate but um I am am knowingly aware that I'm a bit in a wartime general mode. Previous, I would be in that mode thinking that is life. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I am consciously moving through this towards a place where I can create more and more ventral structures with opportunity cost in mind, etc. Certain specific ways, just so I'm not, I generally speak in the clouds a lot, especially on podcasts. So, uh. I defend my time in certain ways that I never would before. Tuesdays, you can't get a hold of me. You'll never see me. Um, and that's an all-day thing that, like, puts so much gas in my tank that I can run through walls the next six days in a row. Um, certain time-blocking things. So I have a lot of different hats that I wear. Different. I have to shift hats. That's the hardest part. This like, task-switching thing. Like, consulting strategy on an agency thing and then you know, coaching movement and then coaching coaches and then designing something and then writing something are very different tasks. So having buckets that those things happen in. So I can go back to the original skill that made me good at anything, which is that I can focus as well as anybody that I've seen. Now I backdoored myself into a person who doesn't focus at all and just does five things at once. Right. And so these are some of the strategies just to Give you mm-hmm. something more concrete than I'm sort no, of working I'm, through. No, I'm
0: definitely seeing it, and yeah. I appreciate you sharing. Something that comes to mind, too, just because you and I both love the concept of transferable skills, and I, I talk about this often in, in coaching, the, the secret sauce is within those transitions, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, just creating the time buckets or the time blocking is one thing, and showing up is this cliche concept that's like, oh, just show up, and half the battle's done, but who do you show up
1: as? Yeah.
0: What, what are you, what is your strategy kind of to go from, okay, you're talking agency strategy and now you're getting ready to go coach a, uh, a strongman class mm-hmm. in that in between, is there something that you do? Like, do you change an outfit? Do you snag a coffee? Do you do 20 burpees? Is there a breath work thing that you do? Or is it just like you have the ability to kind of shift gears?
1: So um, it depends on what the task is, but I'll give you some examples. I've noticed that the intensity of the task switch is uh, directly correlated to the uh, length and specificity of the transition. So back when I was writing my book, um, that was the hardest thing up until that point that I've ever done. And I could task switch pretty good. I could be programming and someone could walk in and I could answer a question about whatever, payroll, payroll and then quickly transition to coaching classes and then hop on a call to do like a salesy kind of thing pretty well. I could not do those things and then immediately start contributing to the manuscript of this book. It was like so gnarly to do that. Yeah, that's tough. So I had to transition, and it started as a bike ride to a place in which I would write. And the bike ride became a way to give up my mental... Mind share on those other things and then arrive at, to a place where the sole job was to contribute to this manuscript and then also important the bike ride back was time to transition back into the other roles uh, what was interesting is towards the end of the book the manuscript got so big and I'm not good at writing big long things everything I've written was very short up until that point is I would have to go further and further away so now I'm in my car I'm like driving an hour to a place mm. Right? And then towards the end, it wasn't like I planned plane flights to do this, but I, normal travel of my like consulting work, I would get my best work done on a flight. Oh wow! Right, it's like it's like the distance needed to, to be greater. Um, those are the big examples. The smaller, more sort of universal ones for me is largely based around my personality. I'm, uh, I, you couldn't score another point on the. Myers-Briggs towards introversion for me so I'm um, as introverted as it gets whatever I say that on every podcast every introvert can't wait to tell you that sorry not sorry I'm super introverted Um, time alone is like a secret weapon for me so it's weird but transitions that even include going home I go in my room I close the door I don't even have a task to do. I don't do any breath work. Just being alone allows me to like move into the next thing. I love to think. And so if I'm conversing with other people, if I'm around other people, I can't do that. Yeah. Right. And so I find that just a few moments by myself in any capacity is like my secret sauce. Yeah. So to speak.
0: I definitely relate to that. It took me a while to, to self assess and study that over the course of time. But I think it goes back to the lenses you have on the world and your ability to intake. You can feel other people's energy, you can see their movement patterns. You're you're studying and seeing body language. There's all kinds of input coming in if you are a student of the world. I think sometimes when you're just in the self, it can be a little bit of a strength sometimes because you're actually oblivious to everything else. Totally. However, long term I think it's actually a huge curse. Yeah. And so it's just fascinating how a lot of these things like intermingle once one or intermingle with one another. And I, I guess my next question is, has the alone time helped you better trust your, your intuition and your internal compass to help steer the decision-making that you make in your life?
1: Yeah. I think that, um, we had a, a a phrase uh, back when, especially as a freshman, a phrase in, in college baseball that was uh, slow the game down, <laughs> you know. okay. So when things are moving fast, the goal is to, like, do less, slow the game down so it can come to you rather than just being reactionary. And that's such a life, like, transferable skill as yeah. well. John you Wooden, know?
0: 101, be quick but not in a hurry.
1: That's totally it. So, So in stillness, or in my case, aloneness and stillness, I feel like I can get clarity. Um, I really struggle cognitively being creative in public, you know, which is like something that has to show up with my job sometimes. So it's like, I have to, sometimes I close my eyes when I'm in front of people and I'm like talking, that's me searching for like aloneness to think through things. Um, and so, yeah, this, th- those times alone is, is, uh, key for decision-making because without them, I don't feel like I can. I can ingest and, and work through things, you know. So the worst thing I can do is make a decision, an important decision in a group format. I'm very bad at that. Yeah, right? it's challenging. And so it's just, I need to know that about myself and, and act accordingly sort put of.
0: Put yourself in the right yeah. environment to then thrive.
1: And a lot of people are external processors. It's like funny. It's like, <laughs> and I know that when I'm with them and I'm different than them. So I'm obviously, I think it's hilarious that they're, They don't even really need me to say anything. They're just thinking out loud and saying, so, but if I do the one thing and then this will happen if I did it, and I'm just like, okay.
0: It's like a a verbal brain dump (laughs) that allows them to organize the (laughs) ping pong in their head.
1: I couldn't be more opposite. I'm like, that would be wasted words in my opinion. Yeah, that's
0: fascinating. Yeah. Something I'm curious about, we've toggled a little bit back and forth between your time at USD, your time now as a high-level entrepreneur doing so many different things. What's a story that you told yourself early on that's no longer serving you?
1: Mm. Well, um, hopefully I'm not retracing my steps here, but I think the clearest one was I could not have fathomed that this thing that I loved about myself, which was this willingness to grind, so to speak. You know, it's like grind culture got so popular. Like I embraced a certain desire for adversity that I think is totally misguided I'll give you a more specific story this is helpful and generally more colorful and remember Mm -hmm. memorable for a podcast okay Garnett Avenue you know what that is Mm -hmm. yeah Pacific Beach it's where all the bars are I want to I'm not going to throw my teammates under the bus but some of my best friends were in the car and this is the type of culture that we had just egotistical you know looking back it's not not a great attitude to have We would be driving on, like, a Sunday morning to go to training thinking we're, like, elite, you know. We're, like, better than thou because we're, like, high-level, whatever, baseball players. Who cares? But at the time, there was this judgment where we would be driving down Garnett and there'd be all these people out in their Chargers jerseys going to the bars. It's, like, 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. Whatever's going on. And we'd be, like, look at these civilians. What are they doing? Grow up. I mean, your name on the back of the, you know, the all this talk. Yeah. Former me. Ashamed to say it, but that's the truth. Yeah, it's honest. Super judgmental about that lifestyle. Flash forward 20 years, you're looking at a guy who does not know how to enjoy his life. That's a real problem. If you want to make me cry right now in public, you ask me what I do for fun. I Can't figure it out. I'm working on it, but I don't know how to do it. So the jokes on who
0: I don't know though I think it's I think if I were to give my observation you've actually blurred the lines between work and play I've heard you say it before you block out your Tuesdays where nobody can gain access to you and you work but your definition of work is writing what you want to write about sharing it with people that are investing in in the vision that you see as your life's work. So it's like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Your form of play just doesn't fit the societal narrative of, hey, I'm going to the bar wearing a Chargers jersey. It's I'm going to the coffee shop to write and impact other people along the way, which I view as very honorable.
1: Yeah, I I hear that. I think that there's some truth to that. And I mean it when I say I have something to learn from those folks that I had a lot of negative things to say about.
0: Interesting. It's very fascinating to see that because you would think that your time after baseball games, like hanging out with teammates, or like when we've gone out to dinner before and kind of spitballed a little bit, like that's very much enjoyment and fun. I totally. think I think you definitely find ways to fit it in, and also you've built a lot of really meaningful relationships, and you just had the famous Harvey Martin out to your gym and that's did right. some cool stuff with him. Yeah, the relationships that you've made, you know, I think are also a, a telltale piece of like they're not just like surface level. There's true meaning mm-hmm. and an experience that you go through with a lot of these people that you rub rub elbows with.
1: Yeah i um, I think all roads lead to discernment. Um, and from a friendship perspective, there are I'm I truly feel blessed to be surrounded by the best people in the world. I mean, I'm blown away. You mentioned Harvey. I got to stay. uh, He got to stay with me the last uh, last weekend. And um, my cup is just so full, just being in his presence, you know, and um, folks like yourself, folks like uh, hopefully I'll be able to see a former teammate on the way home. Um, Yeah, I I can't do the service level thing. I don't want to do the service level thing. And I think that um, if we look around, there's some people who are vulnerably doing incredible things in the world. And those are the people that I want to be next to Mm -hmm. because I think maybe that'll help me do that. You know,
0: I totally honor that. And also living is pursuing what, what lights your heart on fire. The surface level thing, especially in LA, it feels very transactional. It doesn't feel real and you can play the game in the beginning, but it gets old yeah. And it works until it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And then inevitably, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, you can only mask it so much with, an, with back squats and pull-ups and work. Yeah. At some point, it's like, what gives me true meaning? How do I want to live my life? Who do I want to share it with? And what mistakes am I willing to make to suffer the consequences in pursuit of what really, deep down, is my calling my my intuitive inner voice in the midst of extreme discomfort and loneliness and then taking those things and thinking how do i put buoys on these things so they can float to the surface to eventually leave the world better than i found it
1: yeah i think that um a genuine best effort has never led me astray never never led me in the wrong direction you know so that, that's the only compass i think really it's like, yeah can it, we it's- do
0: what is something you did as a child that you no longer do as an adult for many that answer is play rx mark Gear allows for your daily workouts to turn into play and exploration in my training the freevo rope gives me access to a versatile rope that i can take with me wherever i go on the road at the beach to The park or playing at home, RX Mark Gear jump ropes fit my needs. We at Allsmith trust RX Mark Gear. Their gear is always reliable and gives me peace of mind that I will have top notch equipment to support my health and fitness journey. Hop on over to RX Mark Gear and use the discount code Allsmith to shop their latest cutting edge gear. Have your gear work with you and not against you. Sounds really cool to be like, oh yeah, seek your edge. But the process of finding the edge is tough. Yeah, I mean, a, a very surface level analogy is just like hop on a salt bike and just smash it. Yeah, go as hard as you can, and then see where that edge is. Yeah, but that same metaphor can be that deep work that you talk about. You were the first person to, to phrase it that way. Yeah, and now ever since I, I heard that, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm in pursuit of that. Yeah. Where's the shovel?
1: I got a lot. Of, I have a lot of opinions about that. Um I'm not sure. Um, from what different lenses your your audience will be looking at this from, but let's just say probably a good number of them are getting after it on an assault bike, and you know they they know how to suffer in, in a gym. Um, I think this is maybe controversial. Uh, I posed a question actually. I'll I'll say it this way: I posed a question, um, maybe on Twitter or something, um, which was I'll try to say it verbatim. Is it still mental toughness to do another hard workout if there are more pressing personal development issues present? And I think that for some people, yeah. Their next edge is can I show up for myself and be disciplined and throttle myself in a gym and keep going and not quit? Mm-hmm. For you, that is a box you've checked so hard. Uh You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, maybe we should keep doing it or whatever. Um, But there's nothing uh, for me to glean that's pressing by uh, pushing a prowler. Uh I know that the most important edges for me to explore are these... Parts of me that are actually scarier and harder than pushing a prowler, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that um, that's an interesting next level for a lot of us, you yeah. know? Um, that,
0: when you posted that, man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And I think these last couple years, I've deconstructed that that in me and a, a lot with the people in, in my tribe and my audience, but it very much was... Was really cool because I I said it to you briefly offline you say all these very great things, but I wasn't ready to hear them Mm. and then I heard that one and it really was the metaphor that came to mind was I Feel like this caterpillar inside of the cocoon. That's like trying to put the wings out But is kind of scared to do so it's painful to do so because that also means that the way I identified as an athlete, which many people, many of you guys identify as an athlete, which we all are to some to some extent, but when that's where you place your self-worth based on your performance all the time, forever, all of a sudden, if you're going to transcend into that butterfly, that old version of you actually has to die. Yeah. And for the last couple of years, for me and many other people that I was spending t- my time with, we didn't want to let that go,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that my my stubborn mind was like, "Why can't I do both?" Yeah, and it's like it goes back to that that question from from Chris Voss or that concept of never split the difference from mm. his book, which is everything is a negotiation. Yeah, if I want to grow into this, the dosage of that is going to have to be less. Yeah, and that's really scary because I know this, I don't know that. Yeah, and when you think about seeking your edge and the the fear of uncertainty what i think about is less about i'm scared of what's over here more so i'm scared of letting go of that Mm. and then becoming the traditional entrepreneur that gets the dad bod that gives up all these standards thinking about hold the standard Mm -hmm. and then getting to somebody that okay maybe we make a ton of money and have great business impact but then we lose sense of self, right? Like, I think yeah. there's that Buddhist quote, which is we live backwards in the sense that we give up our health in pursuit of money. Yep. And then later on, we end up sacrificing our money in pursuit of health. That's right. And so there, there's so m- many paradoxes to deconstruct within that.
1: Um, can I offer you potentially a different way of looking at that? Totally. totally. So... This is at the heart of um, change behavior. I've been obsessed with change behavior and development. Um, I don't claim to know everything, but I've been able to, you know, teach this in some way, shape, or form all around the world. And and my obsession comes from the work of people, you know, much further along than I. Um, but a lot of change behavior is held up by sort of what you've just articulated. We have um, this. This, um, the language would be a hidden competing commitment. Okay. So it sounds less hidden for you in that case where it's like, well, I don't want to give up my physicality for this other thing. And I'll, I'll quickly get to the punchline and we can talk about the details if that's helpful. But the punchline is it's not either or, but as long as you perceive that it's either or you will never give that up. mm mm-hmm you see what I mean? And so yes, it's important to look at growth, uh, inclusive of loss, like what's at stake here. And there will be loss. You know, if I want to emerge to the next level of me, what will I lose? And there will be elements. But anytime that your mind starts to reduce a scenario, especially like a highly emotional, high stakes scenario into like either or, just kind of like take a pause and reinvestigate that because it might feel very heavy and weighty to you. But from my perspective and probably from the perspective of people who are listening and watching, I'll speak for everyone. We're not really worried about you losing your fitness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to be just fine. You know what I mean? But in your mind, if those are the consequences, of course you will not change. Totally. I'll give you a quick, thing for me, which was, uh, when I was in my depressive zone, dark zone, um, my growth had to come from building these reciprocal relationships. You know, how could I, um, set boundaries and, and feel good around people? And the short story is in my mind, I was committed to things that you would find very honorable, no one would blame me uh they they are things like uh being a nice person being a hard worker not being like too cool for school you know not being this egotistical leader being a blue-collar individual so as long as i'm committed to those things which i think you would think are generally good things i think they're generally good things as long as i believed that i had to give those up to tell people no or not say yes to everything, or set boundaries in my life and enjoy my time and things like that. Of course, I would choose holding on to that than being perceived as a jerk uh-huh. or whatever, right? My mind couldn't see that they could both exist at the same time. And what through a process that we use all the time in the gym organization, um, I was able to experiment with that. So you could experiment. In ways that maybe you you aren't already. I know you're you're always working on your yourself, but you could experiment with well, how much fitness would you lose to explore this other thing? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Would you lose ten percent? Like I don't know. I bet you could hold ten percent of your lifts and within ten percent of your lifts and really grow massively in other areas. But if in your mind you feel like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm either going to grow in this way and you know, have a dad bod and completely give it up and not be an athlete anymore, or I'm going to hold on to this thing that's important to me and keep pushing off this thing. Of course, no one would blame you for, for doing that. So I think that, um, change behavior can come when you start to expose these assumptions. Yeah. It's a really big assumption. And what's funny about them. I don't know if it's funny. What's interesting about them is, they're always, uh, I should say, they're often obvious to the observers. Yeah. Right? Like, when I was going through, uh, I'm I'm saying too much about this, but I was, I went through this process publicly at one of my seminars. I, I brought Dr. Miller up, and she took me through this thing in front of people who, many of them love me to death, and they, their reaction was like, yo, like, they want to save me. They're like, dude, you don't have to do that at all. Like, <laughs> go on vacation. Tell me no. Like, do, you know, they're trying to save me because to them it's so obvious. Yeah. But to me, I'm like, no, I will be an asshole, distant, egomaniac, too cool for school guy. And they're, they're trying to sit whatever in the same way that you're like, I don't know, like, I, am I giving up this identity as an athlete? I'm like, dude, you could take a nap for the next year and you, you are an athlete.
0: Totally. It's an interesting thought process too because you're totally right. And I now think of it more as like it's a – it, fitness is a stream that's now funneling into the bigger pool of what makes up life. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be supportive of it and not, not taking away from it. Like old me was hitting it so hard where there was no stream of consciousness to do anything else. Because you needed all the recovery time and all right. the, it, it just bled into every element of life where it owned me and i've spoken to many former former professional athletes that have experienced that whether it was basketball swimming football a lot of my football buddies same thing because of the injuries associated with it and what what's also interesting since we're around holiday time now what's so fascinating with a lot of my my professional football friends is that they'll go to get togethers and like people don't know what to say to them anymore cuz for the last decade it was I saw you on that game on Sunday. That was awesome. Or, and and now they see them, they're like, Hey, how's the weather? Yeah. And, and it's like now their, their conversation you realize was so transactional mm-hmm. and we see it all the time where it's like, you go to a get together and it's like, Hey, Hey, what do you do when you meet somebody for the first time? Yeah. And then based on the response, a low level thinker is now going to try to do the math in their head, okay, if you do this, this is how much money you make, that's how much respect I'm going to give you. And it's like funny to quantify all of these things. But if you're actually willing to sit in that over the course of time, it just comes down to like, what do you want? That Mm -hmm. same question before, do I want to be validated for my function as an athlete? Or do I want the physicality to then funnel into making all of the other spokes in the wheel that much stronger. So the wheel can actually go faster and do cool shit. Yeah. And it, I think it takes time to go through that. It does take a understanding that it needs to be not a, not a seesaw or a weight scale where like you said, if you're going to give this up, it's going to be this. It doesn't have to be that. Yeah. I think of it more now as almost like a harmony. How do they harmonize with one another? Cause Some days, okay, you might have more time, not as much business and other stuff going on. Cool, you might put a little bit more into the fitness bucket. Mm -hmm. Okay, other days you got more business stuff going on. You got to let go of that bucket a little bit. Yeah, And being okay with that, I think that's a really fun way to think about it. And I thought it was really cool too that you were willing to put yourself in front of the public eye to unfog your lenses a little bit to gain some personal clarity in the pursuit of moving forward in the right direction
1: yeah i mean that's like the the paradox and the hardest part of growth everyone i've ever met says they want it (laughs) you know growth is like all right well um what's tricky about that is we don't really know how because we can't objectively see ourselves so hopefully you are surrounding yourself with people that will bounce back info that's outside of your peer view about yourself or you put yourself in scenarios that will teach you that. Sometimes sports is a good environment for that. But um, we definitely cannot see and perceive our own self. I mean, going back to the five perceptual positions, it's like, wouldn't you want the other four perceptual positions of yourself? Like, that'd be really cool info. That's like the ultimate 360 feedback or whatever, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. dang, now I can gather how I need to grow and learn. I mean, we have so many defense mechanisms and blind spots that we're doing a great job avoiding the ways that we need to improve. And so, I mean, the companies that like I, I build the, the, there's one goal to make money, but the other goal of equal importance is development. And so the way that we set it up is this environment of feedback, you know, it's like, in order for us to work together, I have to hear from you the stuff that I don't see about myself and the way that I act and the way that I can grow and the way that I can prove because um, there's no possible way that I'd be able to see that in myself. What's scary is moving through life without having any of those mirrors and then being subject to the blind spots that you'd be subject to, you know, and um, we have to like create those in many ways uh
0: when it comes to feedback i've heard you talk often around the importance of negative feedback and how valuable it is and negative not carrying a negative connotation but just like definitely being in the category of like not always feeling good yeah and and sometimes that's hard to receive for somebody that's more of a uh a positive reinforcement person totally And how do you guys kind of decipher around meeting people where they're at, making sure they're getting the appropriate information that they need? Because those blind spots can be scary. And if there has been a track record of success, it's almost like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you get that pushback. But then you and I both know the guy that goes from A to B, a certain set of of framework will work. But if you're trying to go from B to C, you're probably going to need an upgraded or newer framework.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm firmly of the belief that uh, negative feedback is the source of growth. Um, Disconfirming information, I think, is the best way to say that because it's not just verbal negative feedback. If you had an experience that gave you uh, information that disconfirmed your worldview, okay, so uh, we can think of maybe a quick silly example. Let's say you were saluting the crossfit flag so hard in 2014 that if someone mentioned to you the use of accessory work you'd be like "Nah, bro we don't don't isolate a hamstring get out of here yeah um because that was your dogma that was the the frame in which you saw the world and then a crossfit games champion would come around and be like yeah i really got after these uh um you know glued ham raises and uh did some bodybuilding on the side and it really supported my ability to tolerate uh, a week of CrossFit games competition, you would have to either make that person wrong or then include that into your worldview. It would break your frame and grow your frame. And you know, that's a less painful example. It's not someone telling you about your personality traits or your behavior, um, but that is disconfirming information. And so, uh, I usually articulate this very clearly just to make it clear. Um, if I told you everything that you already knew, let's just say I told you a thousand things right now. If I printed out a thousand things that you already believe to be true and I just read them back to you right now, you wouldn't leave this room different. You would be the same. But if I included things in there that changed or broke or challenged your perspective, there's a chance for change, growth, Right. Mm-hmm. And that is the premise for why this disconfirming information is important. It's funny that you mentioned, and, and many people do this, like, well, it's negative feedback, but it's not like negative in the sense that people all the time want you know, to raise their hand in the back of the room. Can we call it like constructive criticism? And I'm like, call it whatever you want. It's not positive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the fact that we are so ready to be like, oh, but it's not, can we, is why it's so hard. We curate this information out of our language. Um, Most low-performance workers and organizations exchange information that is vague, slants towards the positive, and we withhold the harder negative elements of what we do. I mean, anyone who's listening that has a real job, um, think about an employee or, or someone that you work with. And when I say this sentence... Let's say the person's uh, name's Gary. I always pick Gary as the made-up name. Sorry to all the Garys out there. <laughs> if we worked with Gary and I said to you, dude, Gary was going classic Gary yesterday. Okay, that statement is me sharing a gripe about Gary's, let's say, dysfunction in the workplace. I say that sentence, you know exactly what I mean. And every other employee knows exactly what we mean but we never tell Gary.
0: Mm.
1: You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And Gary is forever beholden to this growth edge that maybe is in his peer view or maybe not, but we are in full knowledge of this elephant in the room, but not able to articulate better teams articulate that because they know that's the juice for growth. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yes, it doesn't feel good. Um, Growth doesn't feel good. Um, But, to answer your question the way we do that is through a specific rite of passage so um generally the best teams in the world in my opinion have a right of passage that is either explicit or implicit we have an explicit one which is called coaches prep just long annoying you can get a job at every other gym before this one uh, it's generally like painful not really but like psychologically challenging and delays gratification and anyone who goes through this process we know has a higher level of uh, willingness and more trust is in the system than if they didn't right in the same way that if, if i think about any of your basketball teams if they just pulled someone from the audience at halftime and brought him into the locker room and put a jersey on you guys would be like no like i don't even care if he's good like what who are you mm-hmm. you're not on this team. You didn't go through our thing. You're not a part of this thing. And um, when you have unique levels of trust and willingness, you have the, the stage is at least set to share that information. You know, a lot of the reasons why people don't give feedback, because it's hard. And it's generally not worth it. All right. If you don't have trust in the system or you don't have extra willingness to like do that hard conversation, you won't. And most people don't. And that creates an environment where teams... Not only will they not get better, they can't get better. Mm -hmm. And so we try to remove that by bringing this explicit conversation around, oh, this whole thing is going to run based on our love and obsession for negative feedback.
0: Yeah. I think that's a a very, very valuable skill to have in the workplace for sure. How do you curate it over the course of time, right? Like you're, you're doing a great job with development, it sounds like. But you and I have heard it time and time again within the fitness industry, like growth potential becomes very challenging. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously with that, when you become a high performer in the fitness space, you eventually hit a ceiling based on the hours in the day, the amount of people you can see. Now things are evolving where you can have an online presence. And then obviously there's entrepreneurial endeavors and products and things that kind of grow or branches that grow from that foundation. But Simon Sinek talks about it all the time. Like if you're a high performer in the workplace, who do you then look to for mentorship and growth? Because, okay, maybe you're developing the the skills, but is that adding to monetary growth, impact growth? Do you feel valued and appreciated? Those are all things that in the workplace, if you're going to continually strive, you've talked about it time and time again. You don't want to make the same money in 2024 that you made in
1: 2023. Yeah, most... This is a, a tough answer because most fitness businesses, in my opinion, my observation, I've seen a lot of them, not all of them, but um, most of them are built in a way that the outcome you're talking about is not possible. Um, I've still never seen a person paid by the class who's making a, a salaried living wage of One of fulfillment, one with like unlimited top end potential because you're trading time for money. Mm -hmm.
0: Dr. Sean Pestich just said that I had him on a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah. Sean's plugged plugged into that too. And I think that um, you can design this in a way that has unlimited top end potential, but it's rare. I I believe that we've done that um, and maybe others have as well. Uh, I'll just give my opinion rather than try to speak universally here. Um, I believe that the way forward is through a, a model of shared leadership, okay, so I believe that leadership, first of all, our definition of leadership is very simple. To be in leadership is to be responsible for the results, period. Any person of any age could do that. Uh, 100% of all people in, in any org- organization could be in leadership based on that definition, and it generally sets the stage for the culture that we're, we're trying to uh, establish. Now, if you believe that leadership has that definition, then it takes on a quality like love or or responsibility. It's like, how do you divide that, right? Like if I, if I take 80% of the responsibility for this conversation, does that mean you can only take 20? You know, I think we can both take full responsibility for this moment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at leadership that way, then we can share it. And so, the way the company is designed is, uh, we have no desire to try to create a career out of just trading time for money, coaching fitness classes. It's like, what will, what are you willing to take responsibility for? And so, people build a salaried career based on how they can bring value and grow the company. And so, almost no one does just one thing. And through that perspective, um, we share uh, a percentage of revenue and. People can do unlimited things there. I mean, they can they can even open their own gym under this. Can, it's endless of what they can do.
0: It's a very cool team framework, too, where it's like everybody's kind of leaning on somebody else that may have a little bit more expertise in one arena and helping and kind of just like there's a lot of push-pull, sounds like.
1: Yeah, and you can't ever just say, hey, like, I'm off the clock. Yeah. It's just not a thing that you can do. It's just not how we work. Everybody, there's a responsible party, a responsible individual for every single thing that occurs in the company. So, um, it's a culture of people taking responsibility, which anybody who's in leadership knows that when someone takes responsibility, it's much easier to hold someone accountable to that actually can't hold you account to something that you didn't take responsibility for. Mm. Right. Very well said. And so, um, most people are, There is no possibility for that because you're right. You run out of hours in the day and you're looking around. I don't know what else to do. Well, the other model that that we have is that you're building leadership skills through these experiments. You're taking on a subset of the company and growing that company. Oh, you, you go capture the flag and bring it back. Look what I was able to do. Look what I learned. I learned about marketing and I learned about communication. I learned about leadership by expressing this in one particular way. Um, that, that's like our, our, our take on it.
0: I love that, man. A couple more questions for you. One of them is around, we touched on it really extensively in our previous episode, just around your book going right, which I love the little blurb that you have alongside that, which is a logical justification for pursuing your dreams. If you were to give somebody kind of the elevator pitch on that book, yeah. what, what would you kind of describe it as?
1: Basically, I believe that for most of us at some point in your life, you felt excited or motivated. You had like a, a dream. Maybe it's a played out word, but you had a dream. You like wanted to do something. Um, and I believe that culturally we've made that into a, an emotional thing. It's almost like there's a pep rally for that. And then the pep rally gets over and then we start to use our rational mind, and I was really (laughs) perturbed by how many people were seemingly rationalizing, moving away from pursuing their best self, because they thought it was more logical, more reasonable, more understandable to concede their best self for something that's more socialized, you know, um, someone else's path, right? So, I figured that writing a, you know, pep rally of a book and appealing to emotion was not the way to reconcile what I was observing. All these adults giving up their best selves. So I tried to tap into what I felt when I got done with baseball, which was technically I should be very scared right now. I've never had a job. Uh, My whole life was devoted to hitting baseballs far and catching and throwing baseballs. Um, But I feel a certain amount of calm in my ability to have success in whatever based on that experience. And like, why is that? And I realized that there's some unique characteristics that are available to you if you're willing to pursue your peak expression. And those characteristics are valuable in their own right but they're also um have this high degree of skill transfer and that's beautiful because um i'm giving trying to give the shortest story possible that's beautiful because it doesn't matter if you make it i mean i didn't you know uh and every single day i'm informed by my pursuit of major league baseball you know and so um it's, it's ironic because the safe route is actually only safe until it's not, and then it's very dangerous. Yeah, You know, the way I used to describe it when I was talking about the book a lot is like to be 55 and to have never met yourself and have no skills, never done anything hard, you have no resilience to adversity, You you have basically shown up and tried to not get in trouble at work for the last 30 years is a horrible place to be. Yeah. That is an unremarkable individual. And as an employer, I'd rather hire somebody who has gone to the end and failed and led an interesting life than the latter.
0: Yeah. That's such a, such a great way to describe it. It's also one of those things along trying to do something worthwhile mm-hmm. as opposed to just settling for something that, Maybe society wants for you. Totally. I, I, I just think you spoke so profound on that. And it just leads me to, you have talked recently around the, the producer versus like the consumer mindset. Mm. Does that relate a little bit from the book or is that evolved afterwards?
1: Frankly, anything I've said recently around the producer and the consumer thing is actually more... It's actually darker than that. It's around like, I think that's at my worst. I start to view people as one of two things. You are either creating things or you're destroying things. And um, I'll I'll give the nicer version. We have this uh, statement around our company, which is observer is not a role. I'm uninterested in any expression that does not have skin in the game. Like if you're just chirping, like that's not, that's not a thing. There's no room for just observers around here. I mean, you tell me like your negative opinion about this thing. Uh, we have this this statement that's similar, which is um, if you have a complaint, we want to know what your commitment is to. Right, like, um, I don't like how this room looks. Is a non sentence in our organization. I don't like how this room looks and here are the seven things I'm committed to doing to make it better. Yeah,
0: solution-oriented.
1: Is is a skin-in-the-game approach to that thing. And um, I don't know. I think that uh, just to, whatever, cry about it, I'll be a, a victim for a second. Um, I think that when you're in the world doing hard things and making things, that um, sometimes it's hard to, to keep an arm's length away from people who are just talking. Yeah. And have opinions and want to break things down.
0: That's why it's so important to stay out of the comments, man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the upsides of, of group dynamics to help increase some of the clarity? I've heard you talk about that quite a bit. And it's working in groups is tough, man.
1: Working in groups is very tough. Um, complexity goes through the roof when two or more are gathered, as the, as the Bible says. Um Two sides of the same coin. One is complexity is high and dynamics can be, let's say, dysfunctional. The the good news is, and I can go into any organization and have this conversation and turn like a toxic thing into the potential for greatness, which is there is so much wisdom in groups. Earlier, and I gave that example about Gary. You know, I encourage y'all to not make that hypothetical. Think about your work. Think about the most annoying employee and just know that when you say, oh, typical Gary, why is it that everyone on your team knows what that is, but it's something you can't talk about? It's that That is the dysfunction of the team. I use this framework, um, not mine, someone else's, um, the four conversations that every group is having, and this will bring light to your question. Every team in history, every company, every family, you could even say, is having four conversations. The first conversation is the explicit one. So between you and I, if there was a transcript of every word that was said, that's the explicit conversation. The second conversation is the conversation that can only happen before the conversation. So if there was anything in the other room that you and I could say together that we couldn't say on here, that's that. The third conversation is the conversation after the conversation. So if there's anything that we can't say on here that we'll say to each other after, that's that. Mm -hmm. The fourth conversation is the conversation that you're having in your head, also very dangerous. There's so much wisdom in two, three, and four inside of any team, family, group, that if they were to be made explicit, there's unbelievable opportunity for change. Like Gary would know that he's dysfunctional as all get out mm-hmm. and we'd have a chance to change. That it would be an uncomfortable conversation, but like literally everyone knows this is a problem. We're just not telling him those elephants in the room. When made explicit have the chance for greatness, any team. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we can all think back to, you might be in it right now, a team that you're on. That's like going through something. Everyone knows, like the things that you can't talk about in a team are known by everyone. <laughs> Why well, can't we talk about them? Yeah. You know, that's the the signature of an elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. So in group dynamics, I view this uh, from a leadership perspective as uh, I, I say, like building a container. It's like how well can you curate the container to do this type of human being interacting? Yeah. And if you can't talk about two conversations, two, three, and four, probably there's a lack of trust and or willingness in the system. That's, that's how I would look at it.
0: Yeah. That's very, very well articulated. I've heard it time and time again, the most successful people are comfortable having the uncomfortable conversations. And typically everything that you want is on the other side of the shit that you're avoiding. Yeah. And it's so powerful to sit there and think about it. What is the best advice that you have ever received?
1: Man, that's tough i hope i am giving you my best answer it'll probably be i'll probably be in the car and think of something else um my dad used to always say this is good my dad used to always say if you're gonna do it do it right and i don't think that that is as dogmatic as it sounds and i don't know if he had the language for it but how i hear that now is um like I said earlier, doing things to the best of your ability will like never lead you astray. You know, he, he would tell me when I was little, I'd like, you know, whatever I'd use, like, you know, a hammer to do something that wasn't like for a hammer, <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you're going to do it, like do it right. Like, don't just, you know, you know, that's not the best way mm-hmm. I think is what he was saying. And I think it's cool because it provides this agency. It's not just responsibility. It's not just like step in line. It's like this agency of like, Hey, like trust your intuition. Yeah. Do it right. You you know what right is. I'm not even I'm not even gonna tell you what right is. Do it right. You know, I think it's really powerful. It's
0: funny. My dad used to say there's two ways to do things, right and again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I hated it at the time. I love it now. That's I'm, just, right. I'm like, I'm just gonna do it right the first time. <laughs> I true. clearly know what right is. That's really good. What's the worst advice you've ever received?
1: Man. Um I think I think there's a lot of projection. I think everyone is projecting onto us themselves. so if they' if, if it sounds like they're talking to you, they're they're kind of talking about themselves. And um, I got a lot of advice to reconsider what I really wanted to do. You know, um, I talk about this in maybe an overly dramatic way. It's true. Um, but, but it's helpful to, to use the same people, uh, as like an example. But, you know, when I wanted to, at a very young age, be a major league baseball player, you get asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? That was my answer. But a lot of people wouldn't let me walk away yet. They'd be like, well, okay, but what's the, what's the other one? And I would just like have to come up with an answer, you know, uh, like an architect. Uh, can I leave now? You know, and um, you know those same people <laughs> are the ones who are like, "You're living the dream, baby." When you're when you're doing it, you know, and they're like, you know, make them take the jersey off your back, kind of thing. And then when I was like, I think I'm gonna open a gym, you know, and and the feedback was like, well, you know how many, like, you know how many memberships, you you know how many $150 a month memberships you got to sell to like, I don't know. And those same people are just like, uh, you know, that's what you, that's what happens when you stick to it. You know, it's kind of this like front runner thing, you know, they're projecting their fear out of, out of like positive intent, projecting their fear on, onto me, you know? Um, so I think the bad advice I've gotten is just around, um, trying to convince me to move away from what I know to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like this. Uh, I didn't, I didn't like this advice at face value, but, um, it's a fellow gym owner. I don't know if I should say his name, successful gym owner in the community who we were like wrapping at, at lunch, uh, just talking about work, I guess, industry stuff, just catching up. And, um, it was specifically around uh, coaching other gym owners because at the time that we were doing a lot of that, and he was like, "Yeah, these guys come up to me all the time, and they're like, you know, um, I want to open a gym. Like, like, how do I do it? Should I do it?" Da, 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 da. And he goes, "I tell them all no." I was like, like I feel, I don't like that," you know. And He goes, "Well, hear me out." He's like, "I figure if they listen to me, I saved them a lot of heartache. They shouldn't have." But if they don't listen to me, they have a chance.
0: And I was like, "All right, respect." I yeah, like I that. actually
1: really like that.
0: <laughs> it, it's fascinating too because, in, in my experience, what I'm exp- what I'm going through now is maybe two, three years ago when I first started the in the podcast endeavor, everybody was rooting for me. Everybody was like, "Oh yeah, follow your dreams. Like you got this," because they they see like. Yeah similar to what you talk about in your book like hey you're going after the thing you're doing the thing and then like you get a little bit of success you kind of climb the ladder a little bit and all of a sudden they start tearing you down a little bit more those same people because now you're actually doing the thing Mm -hmm. and they didn't really think you were going to make it early on they Mm -hmm. liked the idea of you going after the thing thinking that it wasn't going to actually come to fruition and when you stubbornly persist in the pursuit of your dreams and you don't think about the end game you think if I water the soil every day if I tenderize it just a little bit if I reposition this plant in the sun something's eventually going to sprout and if it doesn't sprout we're going to keep trying we're just going to keep trying or maybe we'll get some more seed and it's just like this this game of stubbornly persisting in pursuit of what makes you come alive and something that comes to mind around the the best and worst advice questions that I asked you were the the concept of trailblazing. There, there is no roadmap. Yeah. There is no steps one through 10 to follow. But that famous Emerson quote, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Mm. Fuck, man, that yeah. makes me come alive. Yeah. Because it's like. Now you're carving a path for somebody else to do something similar and add their own spice add their own art and do it their way that's Frank Sinatra man yeah I did it my way
1: yeah hundred percent
0: and that's that's what I'm thinking about now where before it was like oh I, I want the instruction manual and now I'm like I love the instruction manual but as Rogan would say where're this whole world is made up man we're on a yeah. floating rock going around this ball of energy no the, the the founding fathers were no smarter than you and I, and they eventually led to people smoking cigarettes. That eventually did some really cool shit in the world. The best we can do is at least try.
1: Totally. In in the book, I I use uh, something called the cosmic calendar to help people remove themselves from these like socialized stories, right? Like so, a socialized view of life would be like, well, get good grades in high school, then go to the right college, and then work at Google or whatever <laughs> It's like the, like obviously like that's the way and the cosmic calendar is like shrinking down all of existence into one calendar year. So the big bang is midnight on January 1st. And, and this moment right now is December 31st at midnight. And it's like, I think agriculture was discovered like three and a half minutes ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yep. The car was invented like nine seconds ago, or whatever, and it's it's sort of funny because it puts into context this thing of like, well, what even is high school and what is college? And Google is just like a hiccup in the grand scheme of things. And it's like zoom out a bit, give yourself a little credit. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like you're not. I did that for baseball. Like what even is baseball? It's like a bunch of idiots, th- you know, chasing a leather ball around a park. That was invented like. You know, a hundred years ago, this is nothing. This is all made up, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it would be a coincidence if you're destined to follow something that like 11 other dudes did before. Like what? Like, why would that be the case?
0: And one of my favorite things about you, Logan, is you really redefine what's possible. You're you're, you're not one guy. When you go to the dinner party and people ask, like, you probably throw out gym owner or entrepreneur of some sort because it's easy. But there's layers to you, man. And I think there's layers to most individuals in the world. And one of my favorite things to think about is at the time before cars were invented, the question was brought up like, hey, like, you know, what do you, what do you think is the next iteration of transportation? And the answer was always faster horses. Yeah. And it's like, you started a gym. The perception was, oh yeah, bodybuilding, bro, cover of magazines, like let's pursue peak performance and all these things. You've turned it into an educational platform you've used fitness as a vessel to help guide people towards their peak expression pulling in so many different modalities including where we first met which is the strongman seminar with yeah. rob orlando yeah. and you know helping people understand the maneuvering of awkward objects which transcends and translates real life very well mm-hmm. and so thank you so much for making the trek down oh, to this beautiful san diego from los angeles and yeah. And playing a little ping pong with me today.
1: I'm glad we could do it in person. I know, Loved man. It.
0: Um, where I where I'd like to finish things up today, man. You have a couple signs that I absolutely love. The first one being, "You don't have to work out here to kick it." Yep. Something something along those lines. Yep.
1: You don't have to work out to kick it. It's like a it says strict enforcement. It's like a very official looking sign uh, that. When you look closer, it's pretty tongue-in-cheek.
0: And and it's great, man. Like, there's so much elitist mindset sometimes in the fitness world of, like, oh, you're not one of us. And it's, like, we're all human beings, man.
1: Yeah, it's such a wild thing. I've never seen – and I'm just – this is negative, but it's just an observation. I've never seen uh, so many people miss the point, you know? Like, uh, just because you – have double unders uh does not mean you're better than someone else it's uh it's insane uh some of the behaviors that creep in there and so i find that people will rise to the level of expectation that you put upon them and i think that we do a lot to tell people how it is here by here i mean the gym it's like no we are students and when you come through that gate over there you're coming to learn which sort of neutralizes any of the weird behavior that you see at other gyms. And I think everyone I tell that to goes, ah, oh, and they are relieved. And I wonder if no one ever told people that, how many people are being awkward or even standoffish, even really want to be like that, going back to group dynamics. It's like, oh, I'm being this way because I think that's how you're supposed to be in these environments, you know, and so we want to build as many of those frameworks to where people are the way that we want to be, which is nice and caring and open and, and reinforce that, you know,
0: yeah, totally. Uh, Jay Shetty's favorite question. Um, when he first started his podcast, he would always ask people if you could have a billboard, what, what would you have it say? you actually have a billboard that's and right. it says influencers pay more. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. The
1: marquee sign that, that, that was a fun project making this marquee sign, like where you put in the letters and make it say stuff. Um, that's one of my jobs and, uh, it's surprisingly very few characters. So it's like the haiku of like cheeky things. So I, I gotta like make it work character wise. Yeah. The current one says, uh, influencers pay extra, which, uh, the internet was, um, up in arms about in good and bad ways um yeah it's always fun to like find something cheeky to put up there people have given us a lot of feedback that they enjoy those I think it makes the gym more personable you know sometimes it's like we're right on Lincoln Boulevard there's like 50,000 cars drive by a day a lot of them are in traffic I mean one just one time just said traffic am I right and like people were calling in like you guys are hilarious um so it's fun yeah
0: you're killing it man yeah. your, your ability to blend art into the world of health and fitness is super cool. Your merch is oh, kicking thanks. ass. And uh, where can people find you guys, man?
1: Yeah. Um, Deucegym.com. Um, if you go Deuce Gym forward slash university, that's where all the education's at. Uh, you can get CEUs from CrossFit in there, which is cool. Uh, you can find me at functional coach on Instagram and Twitter. Not mm-hmm. on, on Tuesdays though. Yeah, not <laughs> on Tuesdays. I'll get back to you later. Um, yeah. And then the book's on uh, Amazon. Uh, going right
0: you think we'll uh we'll see another book in the coming years
1: i used to like throw up a little bit in my mouth when people ask me that uh probably um not immediately but probably yeah i think i'll I'll dip my toe back in
0: i look forward to it man thank you so much thank you for those of you listening or observing on youtube if you enjoyed my conversation with a real life legend logan galbrick please rate review subscribe and share with your friends and as always stay on the hunt for who you've not yet become next time.